Welcome to Storytime with the Scooby Dudes. Hey kids, thanks for joining us. We're so happy to have you today. Oh, uh, this isn't this isn't for kids. Did I say kids? Oh, it's story for me. Storytime was a kid thing. For no, you, that's a, for, a very adult uh, for thing. the visually impaired for visually impaired adults. Oh, hi, blindies. This is just <laughs> oh, for you. No, 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 <laughs> no, 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 no. Oh man, my recording really spiked there, but uh, <laughs> but sorry. Let me go back to safe territory. Welcome to another Scottish episode of Scooby Dudes. What our listeners may not know is that we are sober this episode. This isn't like last episode. Luke basically has no excuses for the words that come out of his yeah, mouth. I'm going to correct. Evan is sober this episode. Last episode somewhat whetted me appetite. Now I've, I just can't do anything without a lick of the drink. Uh, embarrassingly, no, I am sober right now. And uh, as Evan said, this is story time. Story time with the Scooby Dudes, not... Not TV story time, but the written story yeah. time. We are we're turning off the boob tube. We've we've clicked <laughs> off the the idiot box, and we're going to do a deep dive into some Scooby Doo literature. And, and to be clear, TVs are fine. We don't hate TVs. I I gotta say, those are both very derisive terms for television. We, you don't like the term both. idiot box, I, nor boob tube, my friend. I'm afraid neither of those. Let's at least go b- breast pipe. Can we say breast pipe instead? You can say that. Okay. So we're, we're turning off the, uh, the, the breast pipe. We're, we're turning off the low test score box. <laughs> the imbecile cube. Oh, too, too mean. <laughs> too mean. Uh, I do want to give a thanks uh, right in the intro. Luke and I were both sent these books. Uh, they're titled Scooby-Doo and the Groovy Ghost by one of our friends and listeners, Hannah. Hannah was so kind to give us these, as well as the the handwritten note at the very front. I'm assuming we both got the same note, although we haven't talked about this. I got, with love to the Scooby Dudes, smiley face Hannah. Mine says, ugh, I guess you can get one too. <laughs> and then there's there's no signature. <laughs> wow. I, do you think she got them mixed up and these went to the right places? Because that sounds like that should have gone <laughs> almost, to me. <laughs> almost certainly. Well, I got mine has no markups and has a lot of like heart to Evans in it. Mine uh is in pretty rough shape. Honestly, it arrived in the mail. It was kind of damp, and I don't think it was water. No, like <laughs> like maybe tears. Like she was sad to part with this, or or no, never mind. Um, <laughs> oh, you want to read you, the back you, of the book for us? Perch you your chin on your hands as if like, ooh, Luke's about to say something inadvisable. Let me read the back of this book to give our listeners a, an idea of what Scooby-Doo and the Groovy Ghosts, as produced by um, Cartoon Network and Scholastic, is about. Hey, Scooby-Doo, looks like there's a mystery to solve. Woo! Is the old palace theater haunted? Things start rocking when a guitar-playing ghost makes Scooby-Doo shake and shiver. If the ghost doesn't stop scaring people away, the theater will have to shut down. It's up to Scooby and his friends to pull the curtain on this spooktacular specter. So that's what we're covering today, or this week. I'm sorry, I'm not quite done. Uh, Cartoon Network and logo are okay, trademarks no, no, no. Really, at Cartoon not, Network Not the whole Inc. thing, not the whole thing. Okay, I swear, if you read the ISBN. Scooby-Doo and all related be... characters are elements and trademarks of Hanna-Barbera Inc. 2000. Okay, so this is what we're covering this week. Scholastic Inc. RL2-006-009. Um, we're going to play the theme song, and then we're going to start the episode. Do we do we talk about who we are in the intro? Maybe one last oh, thing. Oh shoot! Okay, um, I said we were the Scooby Dudes. 
Uh, we're two best friends, and we're talking about our favorite meddling kids. And they're dumb dog, too. That dog is named Scooby-Doo. My name is Luke. My name is Evan, if you haven't already gathered all of that. Gleaned that from the, the ether. Well, let's get into it, Evan. We really gotta cut down on our intros. Two dudes talking about Scooby-Doo. Two dudes just like you. Unless you're a lady, mm, this show is for ladies too. If you're LGBTQ, we are your Scooby-Doos. <laughs> I I thought there was a lot of great stuff in that intro. I, I thought I liked it a lot too. Um. Okay. So welcome back. So, Evan, before we get deep into this book, let me just note that there is a second dedication, in addition to the handwritten one to the Scooby Dudes, for Andrew and Nancy. That was written by James Gelsey, who is the author and illustrator of this book. He is, I don't think, the full illustrator of this book. Especially because some of the illustrations in this are clearly pulled from other Scooby works that are not, like, published literature. Well, I do think it is worth mentioning at that same time that, um... This is a picture book. It is 60 flat pages? It's a picture chapter book. I'd say it, it falls pretty neatly in that area between when kids need a lot of pictures and when they need a, a full chapter that's still very large font and paced out with a decent amount of pictures. So 59, 59 pages uh, with pictures scattered throughout. The illustrations I'm seeing now on the inside cover actually by Duendes del Sur. Mm. So James Gelsey, just the author. Andrew and Nancy, some combination of uh, of Duendes and James's kids, I guess. And there's a little dedication. It says, For Andrew and Nancy, if you purchase this book without a cover, you should be aware that this book is stolen property. It was reported as unsold and destroyed to the publisher. You know what I think is really funny? The author nor the publisher is, is that payment for this strip leading book. up to doing this episode, you told me you wanted to read out of the book as little as possible. <laughs> And I'll say, when it comes to the actual book itself, I don't intend to read a single word. Nothing verbatim. The human worst. Um, no part of this publication may be reproduced in whole or in part. Okay. So, uh, I, I do also want to say, before we cover the book proper, hmm. um, if you want to know when this book came out, it's uh, 2000. Hmm. I can see that. That makes sense, having read this. This feels like a 2000-era Scooby-Doo work. So and and actually the first scholastic printing was January two thousand. So right at right at the, uh, so basically like um, scholastic, they survived Y two K, they printed this book <laughs> to celebrate. Like hey, we're all still here. Let's publish this book after all. Uh, one thing I want to just get a brief note on: what's the balance of words to pictures? Would you say is this is this a picture picture book? Is this a chapter kids book? Because there's a picture on almost every page. I believe every spread, flipping through it right now, every single spread has one picture on it. Uh, that being said, I do still want to say that words to pictures, it's like 70-30? Because sometimes it'll be a two-page spread, but the picture will be quite small. And it, the picture does not always pertain to the most relevant action on the pages. I'd say this is embarrassing because I'm an English and writing major, and this is the one book I've read this year. Uh, but I wanted more pictures. I wanted a lot more pictures because some of the best action doesn't get necessarily get a picture. You know what? You're entirely right. You should be embarrassed. <laughs> okay. All right. Let's get into it. Chapter one. 
Uh, we dive into the gang standing outside of the Palace Theater. That's where the story begins. And again, this is Scooby-Doo and the Groovy Ghost. The cover, if I can just describe it, what we're anticipating going in is a blue specter-like ghost wearing purple sunglasses, playing a purple guitar with a purple manacle on one arm while Scooby grooves along on stage. Yeah, so they're standing outside of the Palace Theater. The reason the gang is there is because they have won a radio contest. Um, so they get to both attend a concert and a reception leading up to the concert. I also like that the story begins in the first paragraph with Fred steering the mystery machine into a parking space across the street from the theater, which is the most adult detail ever. Like, I feel like a dad reading this story would be like, well, where do they park the mystery machine? Why, why aren't they going to talk about that? Thanks, James Gelsey. I, I kind of wish that Gelsey had spent more time on I it. I want to know like maybe if it's an automatic or I want if it's this a manual. to be um, a step-by-step how to on parallel parking exactly i know if it's parallel parking we need a full note on that also is this free parking or did he pay for a space is this one of those like lots where you have to get the ticket and put it on your windshield your dashboard the next paragraph is going to take a little more time fred pulled up <laughs> alongside the sedan and lined up their uh their side mirrors then he put the car into reverse and turned the st- see i'm gonna stop because i'm gonna get some things wrong <laughs> You're very, very close to saying something incorrect. Uh, but so they're at the Palace Theater. They just got in. As with so many things, Shaggy and Scooby are excited to be there. And it doesn't make sense. Because, like, wait, are you guys into music? This is a weirdly front-loaded um, chapter, actually. For the first chapter, and it's only s- six six pages, so much happens. The, uh, Scooby and Shaggy are excited, not necessarily for the concert, before the food at the reception. Everything, I feel like almost everything that the Mystery Ink gang goes to, Scooby and Shaggy are like, man, I'm psyched to be there. Why are you psyched to be there? Because there's food there. And it's always We've, a banquet table. I think we literally said this last episode. We said this last time, but hey, let's pick it up where it left off because it's a big part of this book. They're excited for the banquet that's at the concert. I'm going to read some things verbatim. Just make sure it's in a story time voice because kids are tuning in for this episode. I'm going to read a two-sentence paragraph. Just to provide our readers with context for characters who are introduced later. <clears throat> the gang got out of the van and walked across the street. Outside of the theater, a few teenagers were holding signs that read, Save the Palace. Uh, another character who appears uh, steps out of a limo, and he looks like, uh, I don't know, just like a bespectacled white guy. A tall man dressed in a tuxedo got out of the car, and the crowd started booing. And uh, this person, we'll find out, is, I'd say, the most unfortunately named character in the <laughs> book with some weird names. In the year of our Lord, uh, 2018. Yeah, like, let's be honest, I thought the weirdest name we'd get was James Gelsey, but it goes south from there. Apparently, he doesn't want to have the weirdest name on this book cover, or in this book. Uh, this is Sloop Banyan. So, his name is his name is Stuart no, Banyan. Stuart Banyan. Excuse but me. But he's a rock star name. He's he's an ex-rock star with Sloop. And apparently what uh, good old Sloop has been doing is after he got his uh, his rock star money, became a real estate investor. As, uh, as one of the teenagers protesting him out front says, like, that guy is a total sellout. He betrayed us and, like, his music for a quick buck. And I'll say, investing in the real estate market is probably not a quick buck, even if it is a big buck and a quicker one than music. But yes, Stuart Banyan, known uh, as a rock musician as Sloop Banyan, former rock musician who went into the real estate market. Let's describe these these teens. Uh, their names are S- 
Lisa and uh, Lisa's friend. Does Lisa's friend get a name? Todd. It's Lisa and Todd. Lisa and Todd. If you turn flipped up page four, first of all, <laughs> yeah, listeners who are reading along with us, page four now. Uh, Luke, please describe what they're wearing. So Todd is wearing a blue t-shirt and purple uh, pants. The blue t-shirt says save the planet on it. I guess this is step one of that plan. Uh, And Lisa is wearing a purple dress that's like really not just frayed, but very spiky at the bottom. And what is she holding? Oh, and she's also saying, (laughs) what? I looked at that sign. And when I was reading this book, I just assumed it said like, go away, sloop, or something (laughs) like that. But it also says, save the planet. These guys have, are protesting save the planet when what they really want is for Sloop to do some... I mean, we haven't really gotten into the premise of the episode yet, but save the planet is not their mission right now. Let's, let's go back to that first paragraph that I read. I'll actually read it again. The gang got out of the van and walked across the street. Outside of the theater, a few teenagers were holding signs that read, Save the palace. <laughs> All they had to do here... All they had to do was change the name from Palace Theater to Planet Theater. And you're good. You know what? I'm going to say that that was, sounds better anyways. The Planet Theater, that sounds good. If, if readers are not picking and, or sorry, listeners are not picking up what I am putting down, the illustration is far and away uh, not what the actual text says. No, it's the difference between the Palace Theater and Save the Planet. Hey, Save the Planet... A great idea, but not what they're here protesting. I can't believe I didn't catch this. This is such a, a huge mistake on this. Like, when I flipped through this the first time, I thought they were, like, eco-warriors. Same here, yeah. I, did you kind of give the picture the pictures a flip through before going in deep? I, I did. Yeah. I certainly did. Same. I tried. Fortunately, I didn't ruin the mystery for myself, and we won't do, we won't do that for you here. One, one th- other thing I do want to say about the teens before we move past them is, you know who Lisa looks like? And I know you should... Get Google ready, because I, I don't think you'll recognize this immediately. I don't know, like, every cartoon character I had a crush on growing up. Okay, are you serious? I mean, yeah. <laughs> uh, Lisa looks like Akima Kunimoto from Titan AE. Oh, I don't need to Google that, man. Titan AE had the most attractive female protagonist and the most despicable, loathsome male protagonist. I'm like, no, don't, don't accept him. Don't buy into his arc of personal growth. Abandon this jerk. No, 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 no. Uh, they were played by Matt Damon and Drew Barrymore, respectively. Really? Yeah. Really? Yeah, they really got some ta- talent in that voice cast. Man, Titan AE is like the most polished movie that did not succeed on a Can financial I say... level. <laughs> Leading up to this uh, episode that we're recording, I was watching clips from Titan AE, and it has not aged well. I, I do not think it probably has. That is a movie that also, when I watched it as a kid, gave me the feeling of existential dread that I always liken to the feeling of Donkey, uh, Donkey Island or the Donkey Kong Country TV show. Meaning that there's almost no characters, so the world feels empty. And I love the Donkey Kong Country TV I show. I love that show, too, but it, it always bothered me that, like, the Donkey Kong community was basically one family. So it's like being like, trapped on an island with just a couple of people forever. Mm. And just enemies. Like, the Koopas had a thriving community. They did. Um, I, I do want to go back to Titan AE really quickly. Um, <laughs> we got to go back to Titan AE. All right. I do want to say that uh, to tie into a conversation before we started recording, the first mate on that show 
on a, a movie, I'm sorry, voiced by Nathan Lane. No, really? He was the, uh, spoiler alert, he was the villain, wasn't he? He, w- he was the villain, and here's a big spoiler alert for Titan AE, which came out a very long time ago. So, like, again, um, spoiler alert, if you don't want to know, don't listen to this, but... The, the captain comes up behind Nathan Lane's character and twists, snaps his neck. <gasps> That's right! Okay, I, I don't remember Nathan and Lane. And here's the thing, he snaps his neck, and then the body falls downstairs. <laughs> and they animate this like and it is lovingly rendered and you know what the captain who does that in front of the like main characters gets a redemption arc he does he does it's pretty and ludicrous i will say that captain i really liked i like that character um and you wanted you wanted uh akima yeah <laughs> to get with the captain i wanted her to get together with him i also want to say that he was played by jeff bridges but that's just because we were just talking about jeff we're talking about iron man he was uh played by bill pullman Mm, i could see that the very author of the golden compass books very cool okay i don't want to put this into corrections that is philip pullman Mm. (laughs) so let's get back to the book lisa and todd lisa and todd why are they protesting they're exactly they're protesting okay so sloop banyan now simply Stuart banyan was a rock star gone real estate mogul and what he's doing is he's buying out old theaters some of which he even performed at and converting them into multiplex movie theaters and so they're protesting it because this is a historical um piece of standing culture the palace theater or what should have been the planet theater and so they're protesting the fact that sloop is going to shut down a place that he made huge in his rock star days and turn it into a, a, a multiplex theater the, the irony is, and I might be using this term incorrectly, but the irony is that Sloop actually got his first big break at the Palace Theater. Mm. And now he wants to buy it and, and essentially tear it down. Yes, and, uh, and let's note, Sloop isn't here to perform. Sloop is gone. This is Stuart Banyan, and we see a picture of him. He looks like the most bland, buttoned-down white dude ever. He's wearing a tux. He also has, like, that middle part hair with, like, the, the curls on the, on the brow. You know what? This was the 2000s. This was the 2000s, though. Yeah. Because in, um, I was watching Titan AE clips. Oh, this as is I the mentioned. main character's hair. Yeah, that's what he looks like. I think this is a little post Titan AE because they recognize this is no longer cool. Like, they're putting this on a guy we're not supposed to like. Also, um, what's his name? Jim from Treasure Planet. Heavily Jim from Treasure Planet. Treasure Planet also kind of like a Titan AE descendant, I'm going to say. Much better. Much not, way better. Not not good. The sins of the father. Not good. Treasure Planet is <laughs> not good, good, but much better. Uh, let me just mention that Sloop Banyan is no longer here. Stuart Banyan is in attendance, and he doesn't play music anymore. So the concert isn't going to be by him. It's going to be by one Hugo Frescanini, or as Shaggy calls him, some totally no Todd calls him some totally buttoned down nerded out concert pianist. Although it's Todd, so it's probably going to be concert pianist. He, I I don't think he it's it's pianist though. That's right, correct? Yes, it's a concert pianist. Hugo Frescanini is a concert pianist. <laughs> <laughs> right? I don't know, man. I've always said pianist, but um, pianist. But that's because I pronounce a lot of words the way I read them. You, I remember growing up that you were much better read than me. Um, but I'm I, still better read than you. Growing up, this was the case as well. Uh, but there was occasionally a word that I knew how to pronounce that you didn't. Um, because I think I was a little better watched than you. 
despite you being far yeah, better read than me. That so, does like, seem very accurate. I, I would hang on to these little things that I knew better. Like, uh, you said waft instead of waft for a, a little bit. I don't think that's the word. That wa- You think waft is not the word? Waft is the word? No, waft is the word. Yeah, you said waft. But I don't think that that's a word that I... I, I definitely... You're entirely correct in that I, there were a number of... Uh, uh, you think that was just never one of them. Pitfalls um, that, that I faced. Dude, I, I regret to inform you that was absolutely one of them because I, I, I took that, I treasured it, and I pondered it in my heart because I needed that. <laughs> <laughs> I needed that thing. Like, oh, me and Evan, same level. Same level, me and Evan. <laughs> oh, my gosh. Okay. Uh, chapter two. Oh, it's just one note on this. But Scooby barks a lot of his dialogue. Oh, right. Scooby's dialogue, despite being very human-like, he'll bark, which is something that I think is uncharacteristic for Scooby. Scooby barks dialogue, but barking is dog yelling. Barking could be a lot of different things, but none of that is like, right, Shaggy? Obviously a terrible Scooby voice. What Scooby should be doing is he should be woofing his dialogue. Or yelping when he's calling for help or when he's scared. There's a lot of shades of dog speak that could be used in place of bark, which is, again, like you said, just a shout. Uh, so chapter two, chapter one ends with them going into the theater. Chapter two begins with them in the theater. Uh, it is very nice. It's a very nice theater. Uh, their description made me think of the theater in The Shape of Water, which was the best movie of 2017. Really? Did Is that you saying that? Uh, that's the Academy saying that. Okay, I was saying, gonna say, I'd be surprised if that was coming out of you. Uh, it does sound very fancy. They take a moment to mention the enormous crystal chandelier, the size of the lobby. Um, this is a point where a character shows up, and it makes me sort of question what the deal is with James Gelsey. You mean what the deal is with names in James Gelsey? Again, I'm going to say I think he thinks Gelsey is a weird name, and he's trying to make weirder names in the story to make Gelsey look normal by comparison. So, so the owner of the... Um of the palace theater because it, it has not yet been purchased by uh, by sloop um, oh and that's what again sloop wants to purchase the theater he doesn't own it just yet but this could be the last concert uh and and sloop is also uh well that's coming up so so the owner he's wearing um it's it's a tuxedo ish jacket but it's purple with like black uh lapels is that accurate it's it's got shiny black lapels and a gray uh button down underneath it but he also has like frilled cuffs yes frilled like this the shirt he's wearing underneath the jacket has like tiny almost like piratey frills it's it's such a bad decision and almost as like all of the stuff that we see on him is not even as weird as his name his name is obviously the name of someone who is very proud of how much they snorkel <laughs> his name is and uh melvin snorkel much again something a an avid snorkel hobbyist would say to someone who is not avid hey snorkel much someone after they after they suck a little water in through their snorkel <laughs> snorkel much uh he, he's he's like a middle-aged dude he's kind of got like mr fantastic temples he's got a very very receding hairline i thought you were gonna make the nathan lane comparison to him which is not a one for one but it's not completely off base he looks like uh a little bit like an actor but i can't pinpoint who it is so I'm I can't not going quite pinpoint to. it either, yeah. Um, but he's the owner, and he's very proud of the Palace Theater. He says, I take great pride in how well the Palace is maintained. It's the oldest and biggest theater in the state, you know. Of course, if I don't find some big talent, it'll all be for nothing. I'm going to have to close this place down and sell the place. Uh, sell it to Sloop, as Velma 
says. Solitus Loop. And this is the part that I'm going to ask. Let's all bookmark this in our minds. I take great pride in how well the palace is maintained. Again, let's just save that little snippet for moments. Uh, control B. Just uh, going to bookmark that. Just add that to Ooh. our... Uh, yeah. Control C for me. I'm, I'm going to get it on the clipboard. But uh, whatever you need to do. So, so uh, speak of the devil and he shall appear. Sloop does show up. And they're like, whoa, 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 Sloop. You're the guy, you're the villain. You've, you're going to come in here, you're going to like buy this place, you're going to revamp it. And he's like, hey, I am a lover of the fine arts. Also, it is Stuart, not Sloop anymore. He's, he's there to see Hugo Frescanini. He's, he's quite a fan of, uh, of the way that guy tickles the ivories. He says Hugo Frescanini is the finest musician to play at the Palace Theater since himself, which I thought was interesting. Sloop has gone the farthest thing from his own style imaginable like he's wearing a tux he's a man of class now and he was a rock musician and he fully appreciates hugo frescanini but he still kind of holds himself in high regard this might be why todd and lisa call sloop a sellout i think that's pretty fair i i do think it's kind of funny that their the depiction of music the music industry in this book is that it's so similar to film. Like, you start out doing a couple crappy indie films or, like, blockbuster films, and then you want to get classy. You want to get in the academy. You want to get some recognition. And they kind of present that that's what a musician's arc is going to be as well. You start out playing rock. You start out playing these small venues. Then you get big. And then you want to start putting on a suit and going to concerts with uh, pianists. That is that is really interesting. You're, yeah. Although, I guess real estate also factors into Sloop's story. Maybe he's more unique than his labels. So Mystery Inc. isn't wowed by Sloop. There's a little... This this isn't a long-running gag. If there are only two instances. But Shaggy... Um, Shaggy is kind of a mean girl in this book. Hmm. I'll say it now, and then I'll bring up all the instances when as it, as it shows up. I didn't but catch that, so I'm interested to hear. Let's, let's be real. The name Snorkelmuch is very peculiar, but it is not hard to say. It's, it's not that hard to say. Also, it's so distinct that when you hear Snorkelmuch... For me, it's kind of unforgettable. My favorite part about that name, actually, is Shaggy's misreadings of that name. Yeah. Um, uh, speaking of tonight, Mr. Snucklemorch. <laughs> Shaggy. I love Snucklemorch. Please be polite to this man. <laughs> like where um, do you say the food is? And, and he's, the man he's trying to find the food. Snorkelmuch also says there's lots of food, so feel free to dig in. And by the way, my name is Snorkelmuch. You know what? This spread, this does not look like a banquet table. This looks like just a regular sized dining table. I want to describe all of the things on it. Uh, two strawberry sundaes. Five pieces of cheese. I'd say brie. Yeah, accurate. Um, a small plate of sausages. Uh, a plate of square crackers. A plate of mini donuts. Three enchiladas on a plate. A chocolate cake that has been uh, sliced cut out of it, so you can see there's strawberry on the inside, and a sandwich just lying on the tablecloth. No plate on under that sandwich. <laughs> right on the edge of the table, too. This is the sandwich of someone who was walking past and needed a place to set their sandwich for a moment. And yet, in the next page, when we flip to chapter three, Scooby and Shaggy have plates stacked high. Each of them have two plates. Any one of their plates has more than the whole table had. To the credit of, uh, let's see his name again. To the credit Duendes? of Duendes del Sur. Duendes, excuse me. 
a lot of the food on their tr on their plates they're each they're double fisting plates and holding them together to hold up these mess and by the way this is on chapter three already chapter two ends with them running to the food chapter three ends with them having acquired the food um you can see the chocolate cake you can see the donuts the crackers the enchiladas the cho the strawberry sundaes uh the sausages it's actually remarkably consistent uh scooby even has the sandwich that was lying there and somehow uh, Shaggy has acquired burgers. It's, I mean, it's just, it's mostly a fishes and loaves kind of situation where, yeah, this stuff was all there, but how did it multiply like rabbits up to this scene? If I can just make one more note, we also see in the background of that, this little shot in the beginning of chapter three, a poster for The Sands of Cairo, a movie that's referenced that I think is made up, and they keep showing us stuff from Sands of Cairo, even though it doesn't play into anything. They keep wanting to include it so in wait, background did shots. You, did you not Google it? No, is that a thing? I don't know. I didn't Google it either. I didn't Google it, but I don't know that that's an actual movie, even though they show it alongside Casablanca. But they say that that's Melvin Snorkelmuch's like creation, isn't it? No, no, no. Uh, no? It's it's not his creation. He just has a poster up. Oh, you're right. He just has a poster for the Sands of Cairo. I think it's a made-up thing that... They keep showing it in the background of... They're of, using it like Ready Player One scenes. is probably going to use the Iron Giant. Like it's their trump card. Oh my gosh, that's the only reason I want to see that stupid movie. I know. Same here. I'm still not going to see it. I'm just going to watch an Iron Giant compilation on YouTube after it comes out. So Scooby and Shaggy are eating their food. We have two nice images here, one of them with full plates, and then another one with them with empty plates licking their plates clean. There's a, I, there's a really great visual gag um, that I will describe here really quickly for you, um, which is that Scooby and Shaggy have plates piled with food so high they can't see each other. So they're like, oh, there's only one thing for us to do, and then they eat all the food, and then they can see each other. My, and I think that's a lot of fun. I like that a lot, too. My only wish is that in the picture where they have the plates full of food, they were trying to view each other, and they can't. But their eyes are yeah, on like, the food. They're trying to peek around. Exactly. And, and honestly, the plates of food they have are not stacked so high that they wouldn't be able to lower their arms a bit to make eye contact with one another. The sad thing to me is in both of these pictures, they're completely focused on the food, whereas if they were trying to see each other and the food is blocking them and then they'd eaten the food and then they were finally able to see each other again, they're happy about it. That is hilarious to me. And I love what it implies about their relationship. <laughs> that they'll put each other in situations where they have to eat to, see, to, be, to be connected. I don't know. It's a little missed opportunity, but I think the... I don't know if Duende's had the full script when he had to do these illustrations. Yeah, there's an unfortunate miscommunication between uh, uh, words and pictures, which I find quite disappointing. It made me think that uh, the illustrations had to happen based on an early draft, even though the story kept getting edited and workshopped uh, beyond when we had all the images. Eh, whatever the case, Scooby and Shaggy eat a bunch of food, and we're very shortly introduced to a new character... Uh, Shaggy says, get a load of Madame Blueprint over there. Hey, Scoob. Get a load of Madame Blueprint over here. I think she's wearing the plans for a townhouse. Or a rog house. Which took me a second. Uh, Scooby's saying, or a dog house. But rog house looked like hog house. Gelsey is very bad at writing Scooby dialogue. I, I didn't want to pull, I didn't want to take swings because I am not good at writing Scooby dialogue. But I have to say, listeners, Evan has a bit of a gift for that. So I feel like that's a shot that can be fired from your yeah. court. Honestly, I was reading this book and rewriting all of Scooby's dialogue. 
it's it's hard to read. It's and it's not an easy thing to do. Again, I don't have a gift for it. Writing Scooby's dialogue so that he has sufficient words that begin with R's sounds like a dog, and yet is readable. It's it's hard. You just can't do it to every word. No, it yeah, it makes it very hard to and understand. And some words don't need to start with an R. If we actually watch episodes of Scooby Doo, it's inconsistent, but it's not every word with an R. That would be hard to understand. So um, it it is a blueprint dress. It's actually blueprints for the theater that they are all standing in. This woman, her name is um, Wanda Weathers. And she's got a, uh, a somewhat severe, short, uh, blonde haircut. Um, kind of like Olivia Wilde and Tron with an outfit to match. Uh-oh. Obviously blonde instead of, you know, like other hair color. Um, I, I really kind of like her outfit. I initially saw the picture and I thought it was uh, like an old Pac-Man level. I thought it was like a blue, uh, a microchip. Yeah, it kind of looks like that too. Um, but it's very cool. Apparently, she says they're, uh, of course, blueprints for the old theater. I had a designer friend of mine copy the blueprints onto fabric. Um, and Daphne says, I think your outfit is groovy. I noticed it from across the room. What I, um, what I like about Ms. W- Ms. Weathers is that, uh, she comes out and you're like, oh, she's wearing a blueprint dress. She probably wants to save this theater. And Wanda straight up says, like, it's such, it's such a misdirect. It's so good. Uh, because especially because she's like this outfit is my tribute to this wonderful old theater. Fred's like, oh, so you agree that uh, with those people carrying the signs outside? Heavens, no! This is a wonderful old theater, but one that has outlived its usefulness. Do you remember that line that you said uh, that you quoted from Snorkelmuch, from Melvin? Yes, if I may, let me refresh our memories. I take great pride in how well the palace is maintained. I will now speak for uh, for Wanda. Beautiful but drafty, Wanda answered. And the theater itself? Half the seats are broken. The heating needs to be replaced. The floor is sagging. They even had to close off the balcony because the plaster is falling off the ceiling. The best thing for this theater is for it to be torn down. Um, and let's agree, if she's being honest and accurate here, she is completely right. This theater needs to go. If it can't be refurbished, if it can't be renovated, it's a hazard. Still, Velma says, well, how do you know so much about this theater? It turns out Wanda's an architect, and she studied, did a study of the theater a few days ago. She's also uh, not there for the concert. She's actually there to find a client of hers, so she excuses herself. Um, I want to zip through to the end of Chapter 3. Uh, they hear a loud electric guitar sound. They're not sure where it's coming from, um, but it looks like Mr. Snorkelmuch is going on stage to figure it out. So at the end of this chapter, um, we have Scooby and Shaggy trying to track down the, the, uh, the sound, kind of oddly for their characters, as everyone else goes to meet up with Snorkelmuch on stage. Chapter 4. Snorkelmuch is on stage. He's next to a much older gentleman, who we find out is named Gus. Gus, and let me check my notes here, uh, has been the stage manager for 35 years, and never in all of his 35 years has he ever heard anything like the ghostly guitar sound. Uh, I, I say ghostly, um, but he backs it up. He actually says, since there's no explanation, it must be a ghost. It's a little supernatural for a guy that has worked in theater for so long, but presumably he knows a ghost when he sees it. Uh, I would also say that the illustrations of Gus are very accurate to the way he's described in the text. Gus is an older man who is wearing brown pants, a tan shirt, and an old brown vest. And uh, that is definitely him. He, he looks very old man Jenkinsy. He also talks about some other things that happened, like, oh, a sandbag came loose from the rafters, a curtain got stuck. 
And these are not strange things, because he says that these are strange. These are not strange things based on what uh, on what Wanda has has told us about this theater. Yeah, but Wanda, I mean, Wanda claims to be an expert. We don't know that she's telling the truth or that she really knows the theater until Melvin responds to Gus's claims. Uh, to Gus's concerns, saying, those things happen because this theater is so old. There's no ghost here. So, the most concerning thing at this point in the book to me is that Melvin knows his theater is falling apart. He hears Gus say, sandbags are falling and this stuff is coming apart, and he's like, nah, the theater's old, let's get on with the concert. And Melvin does not want the theater shut down. He has no problem with this status quo. Melvin is uh, willfully ignorant, and I think that might be the kindest thing to say about him. I, I think he's in, he's being intellectually dishonest about whether or not this theater can actually maintain operation. I, I think of the uh, analogy or the story of the um, merchant who charters a ship that he chooses not to check the safety of. He chose to be ignorant. Similarly here, Melvin is choosing to be very ignorant. Listeners, you won't hear this part. It's going to get cut. I already regret going to this analogy. <laughs> <laughs> okay, so... Uh, the gang sort of splits up a little bit. There's like this whole thing. Shaggy and Scooby are in the balcony, blah, blah, blah. Honestly, doesn't matter. What matters is that Shaggy and Scooby are separated from the rest of the gang. And because they're separated from the rest of the gang, this gives them the opportunity to uh, bump into the ghost of the episode. Yeah, it's, it's not really clear how Shaggy and Scooby find themselves in the balcony, but they realize that they're there and they start exiting, going down the staircase to return to the rest of the group. That's when... When they were halfway down, they heard some music coming from behind them. I'm just, I'm just going to read that, the next action. Please. They slowly turned around and saw a ghost standing at the top of the stairs. It was tall and wearing sunglasses and playing an electric guitar. Uh, zoinks! A ghost! A ghost! Shaggy cried. Rikes! Scooby barked. Sorry, he barked, so it'd be, Rikes! Yelped! Yelped is so ready at hand because it's scared and it's like fearful. So that is the end of chapter four. Chapter five opens, and, and the concert has begun. So Scooby and Shaggy are trying to, uh, to find their friends. Uh, the curtains part, Hugo Frescanini is on stage. Uh, and then the ghost appears again in a big burst of smoke. The ghost appears on the stage, and although I don't have a strong note on it, he kidnaps Hugo Frescanini, who looks like a scared rabbit. I don't think he kidnaps... Oh, he does. He does kidnap Frescanini, and he does it to a tune. Does Hugo reappear? Hugo appears later on in the... He, I mean, Hugo does not disappear for the rest of the story, but he's gone for the time being, and that's... This is one of the weirder parts that... Okay, so the ghost appears on stage. The ghost raises his hand and played a chord. The ghost raised his hand and played a chord on his electric guitar. The music echoed throughout the theater. It was the same sound everyone had heard out in the lobby. This time, the ghost started playing a song. The music was very loud. As he played, the ghost sang in a strange, echoing voice. You all must leave. This place must close. Listen to what I say. I'll haunt the palace with music and malice forever and ever and a day. It's almost a limerick, but there's the. it doesn't rhyme as much as it should, right? Yeah. It, I guess that is... I was trying to think of what the rhyme scheme was, and you're correct. It, does, it is similar to a limerick. You all must leave. This place must close. Listen to what I say. I'll haunt the palace with music and malice forever and ever in a day. It has to be AA. So the first, the first two lines have to be a couplet for this to be a limerick. But they're not a couplet, and that doesn't work. And also the last line has one syllable too many. Um, Shaggy says in response to this ghost being on stage, like, if he weren't a ghost, he wouldn't be a bad rock star. 
which I think is pretty funny. It's I like that the ghost is like legitimately musically talented. I like that too. It's also a potential clue uh, that we might have here. Whatever the case, when the smoke clears, because there's been a lot of smoke on the stage when the ghost appeared, Hugo Frescanini was gone along with uh, the ghost. Melvin is panicking. Melvin is like, "Ladies and gentlemen, please like chill. Uh, Gus, close the curtain." But nothing happens. So Melvin has to close the curtain himself. Uh, at one point, Scooby barks more dialogue. Because all he does is bark his dialogue. He barks almost all of his dialogue. Let's row, Racky. Risray. Ugh. Risray. Risray? Rock Risray! <laughs> I also think Scooby can say wuh. W isn't too much of a he reach can. for Scooby. Like, there's some letters that he can begin a word with that aren't R. We quickly find out why Gus wasn't able to operate the curtain. Um, they hear a moan, and it was not the ghost. Everyone looks around, and Fred says, Over here! He was standing, uh, Gus was standing beside a piece, okay. He was standing beside a piece of scenery. He reached behind it and helped Gus out. Gus was holding his head. Oh man, those are some terrible sentences. <laughs> okay, I love this. This is on page 32. Um, so Fred is definitely pulling Gus. The piece of scenery... I'm so glad we're gonna take a moment to talk about this. ...is one of the big, not biggest hunks of wood I've ever seen. And it's so misshapen. Oh my gosh. This is like um, if you took two random parts of the guts of ships and you merge them together as if intersecting pieces of a video game. Like it's, there is no conceivable place this piece of wood could fit into the rafters of a theater. Like this isn't, this isn't balsa wood. This also isn't even a two by four. This looks like the beam of of like a Nordic longhouse. It's uh, it's like a beam of a Nordic longhouse that they didn't bother shaving down the odd knots and extra branches. Because it's like craggy. It doesn't look like it's been sanded ever. And even if that's just time worn, it's got like branches and aspects of it that have they're completely ancillary. It looks like they just sawed off the parts of a tree they absolutely needed, didn't trim any of the excess, and just slapped it up on the roof. And, and to think that this dropped from the from the ceiling of this theater and struck Gus, an old man in the head, is ludicrous. Melvin needs to go to jail. I'm not okay. I'm no longer okay with the Palace Theater just shutting down. I need people to be held responsible. Okay, straight up, this immediately made me suspect Gus. There's, There's no, no way. way Melvin and the theater can still be the good guys. There's no way that this piece of wood hit him. Look, Fred should be pulling Gus away, but Gus should not be alive. No, Gus should be dead. Also, like, Gus is just, he's holding his head as if he's been surprised by something, like, as if he's just kind of, like, got to touch himself out of shock, um, when really his hand should not even be able to fully span the wound in his skull. Uh, it should be caved in. I, I know that, I apologize to readers who think this is gross, but you haven't seen the size of this, this piece of wood. So I definitely thought that this was sort of framed that uh, Gus took this enormous piece of wood, like this spar, and placed it on the ground, and then was all like, oh, I've been hit, you know, like, I'm injured. Um, <laughs> and, and the gang's all like, are you serious? Like, this this felon hit you? And he's like, oh, yeah, ooh, my head, ooh, it hurts. It's like someone who, like, purposely scuffs their knee, and then pulls, like, shoots a gun into the air, like, oh, ow, oh, I got shot, owie. <laughs> uh, Rug burn. Melvin is very confused because Hugo's gone, and uh, also, 
the in, in spite of his uh, warnings, or not warnings, but in spite of his instructions, his entire audience just leaves. The part that bothers me even furthermore about Melvin is that when Hugo Frescanini has been kidnapped and all these parts of the theater are falling apart, he says, I don't know what to do anymore. I may as well, I may as well close up right now. Once word gets out about this ghost and what happened to Hugo Frescanini, I'll be forced to shut down for sure. So Hugo Frescanini is already... He only matters insofar as he's hurting the theater by being kidnapped. That, that's exactly correct. Um, there's Again, Melvin has not given a further thought for the rest of this episode about rescuing Hugo, about alerting the authorities to Hugo. It's purely damage control mode. So Mystery Incorporated does assure Melvin, don't worry about it, we'll help you out. They're mystery solvers. Um, that's the end of chapter five. The, the picture where Fred motions for the rest of the gang to huddle around Melvin... 33, page 33, can you get a look at that? Fred is way too eager for where Melvin <laughs> is feeling. Fred looks like he's about to punch Melvin in the gut. <laughs> Fred looks like he Fred looks like it's unclear whether he wants to like really help Melvin or really sock it to Melvin. And Melvin is not sure which one's gonna happen. <laughs> Melvin looks oh so my scared. Goodness. What an ill-advised illustration. Especially because Shaggy's looking on with such concern, like he doesn't know whether Fred's going to sock Melvin or not. But uh, Fred says, time to get to work, and we're on to chapter six. So chapter six, there's the usual splitting up. Let's split up, gang, look for clues. Uh, Scooby, Shaggy, and Velma are on the stage, and there's this little, you know, Scoob and Shag are goofing around on the grand piano. This is, I guess, the closest we're going to get to a Scooby-Doop in this episode, and it's not very close. Um, Sco Shaggy whispers to Scooby, Psst, hey Scooby, I have an idea. Go sit at the piano and wait for my cue. Okay, Scooby said, which is the most Scooby thing he says in the whole episode. He sits at the piano, and Shaggy does a fake introduction for Scooby as the famous concert pianist Scooby Dooberini. And that's about it. That's the gag, is that they're both acting for no one pretending Scooby is a great pianist. I really like that um, that they're both playing, and what they choose to play is uh, is chopsticks. Because I like the idea of Scooby and Shaggy sitting on a piano and playing chopsticks together. That's nice. I think it works better in an episode than in a book. I, I really question whether kids know what chopsticks is. It's uh, <laughs> Yeah. It's just the black keys. Not the band. Although, <laughs> the, did you know that the Black Keys, the band, always puts chopsticks in every one of their songs as a reference to their name? It's hidden in there somewhere. Sometimes you have to play the song backwards. <laughs> Sometimes you have to very selectively pull notes and then put it together in post. Um, but it's always there. So Velma finds a piece of paper, which is obviously a clue. There's, there's a puff of smoke that appears. Velma disappears, and then she reappears. In the balcony. Right. This is, this is the prestige. I'm just realizing this is, this, is a, this is a prestige moment. There is a real dead Velma under the stage. There's a few things to note, one of which Velma screams, which doesn't seem very Velma-like to me. Does Velma ever scream? Uh, I don't really recall her screaming. I'd say she yelps. She cries out. But scream? I think that's Daphne's territory. I don't think any of the gang screams except for Shaggy and Scooby. <laughs> I know we, I do think when someone's off screen and something happens to them, we hear a scream, but rarely one of the members of the gang is off screen when something 
happens to them. So Link's like, our music must have blown her away. Velma? Velma, like, where'd you go? Huh, Relma? Scooby barked, by which I mean to say, Relma! Relma! I'm fine, Velma called. She sounded far away, and of course that is because she's up on the balcony. Uh, again, just to circle back, Prestige? Pretty good reference, right? Should I have done a spoiler ahead of time for that? It was... I honestly can't remember. Oh, dude. That was my best reference of this episode. The Prestige, The Illusionist. Like, what's the difference, oh, honestly? Oh, shut up. Shut up, shut up, shut up, shut up. They're the same movie. No, 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 no. Not even saying anyway, this is bad. Anyway, chapter seven starts. You are skating past this in a way that I hate. And Velma has joined the others on stage. The Prestige is so good. To share with them it is... that The Prestige and The Illusionist are the same oh, movie. The Prestige is one of Nolan's best, and Nolan is an amazing director, despite certain failures. Um, Go see the prestige people. She explains that Velma, she fell down a trapdoor. She was under whatever. Uh, she got up to the balcony. Here's here's something that's extremely notable about this, and this stands out, I would say, from almost every Scooby episode we've covered on this show. Mm. Is while Velma is in the basement or under the stage, she notices stereo speaker wires, which is how the ghost is projecting his music. You'd think the stage manager would be able to figure that out. You'd think that would be, like, his purview before he goes to ghost accusation territory. But how's that unique? Um, it's I think it's unique because the gang normally doesn't find, like, the explicit means by which a ghost is sort of, like, putting... It's like, um, with that one guy, they're like, Oh, uh, look at this. It's an elaborate sequence of smoke and mirrors. Or, uh... <laughs> <laughs> Typically, that's the final thing we find. I, I'm going to push back just a little bit to say, I think in some episodes of Scooby-Doo, way before we solve the mystery, there's a moment where we find proof that the ghost couldn't possibly be a real ghost. Really? We find some piece of their, yeah, their machinations that shows, oh, this is a human doing something very real. Can you provide me with an example? Because I, I don't I have can't, any. I cannot provide you with an example, I have to admit. Um, I This is purely a, a thing remembered in general that I think this has happened that... I think even when they find something like the speakers, they don't typically bring it above the surface to say, oh, so it can't be a real ghost, it must be a human. They typically leave that unstated until the final moment. But they'll often find hard proof that they'll ultimately use to be like, that's when we knew it couldn't be a ghost, even though they don't share that with us, or necessarily mm. act like they know it's not a ghost. Isn't this, I feel like they're, they're so directly just like, like, how about that? Our ghost is wired for sound. That's a shaggy. And then Fred is saying... I have a hunch that our guitar-playing ghost is about to be unplugged. And they're so directly also, just like, mm -hmm. this is what the ghost... They're still calling him a ghost, but... I think I think you're completely right, that it goes more to the point of them recognizing that it's not a real ghost and it's just a human. The part that stuck out for me that I really couldn't get my focus off of is the picture of Fred on this page, which is his character profile picture anytime where uh, we see, like, character descriptions of them, like on a calendar. You know what I mean? Yeah. Like, this this picture of Fred has nothing to do with this book. This he picture was lifted like, um, from another Scooby thing. That episode of Friends where Joey has a hernia. <laughs> and he's got his hand in, like, his pocket or, like, his waist to push hey, back in this hernia. Hey, Timmy, I got a surprise for you. <laughs> That's one of the very few episodes of Friends I remember distinctly, but I know I'm that one. honestly shocked, because I know you haven't seen very many. I've seen very little, uh, but that's one of the few ones very that I've not only seen, we've seen together. <laughs> I've had a hernia. But you've had a hernia? I have. Oh. Mm -hmm. Gross. Fun fact, listeners. 
I thought you'd all want to know that. This, but no, really, this picture of Fred is lifted from another picture I've seen. The one that I looked up to find how tall Fred is and how tall everyone is. You know, where it has the character profiles for each person and some piece of supplemental Scooby Media. This is worth commenting on very, very, very briefly, because I don't want to spend a huge amount of time on it. But uh, with all due respect to Duendes del Sur, uh, Duendes del Sur did a very bad, very lazy job. <laughs> wow! Okay, let's at least... Let's at least make a winner and loser for this out of uh, Delsur and Gelsey. Who did the better job between illustration I, and writing? I think Gel. I think Gelsey did the better job. Really? Because this is at least an original story. The Windows Delsur. A lot of these images, which you've said uh, leading up to this, they're Scooby stock art, or they're it's from like Scooby promo material. And um, and Duendes has just basically, I guess, traced over it. See, I hmm. That is maybe not a bad point. I completely gave Del Sur a pass on this because I assumed they commissioned a certain amount and then they just decided, hey, we'll pad it out with some extra art that we've already got lying around. I assumed that was not a direction or something that Del Sur was involved in at all. Just like if Gelsey had, if, if the text was supplemented with a completely ancillary piece of Scooby writing, I wouldn't really blame Gelsey for that. Whereas I think this whole book is Gelsey's is Gelsey's work with someone else's editing mixed in. Like, there are some scenes where the backgrounds are really, really nice, and I'll say it again, lovingly rendered, but there are other scenes where the background looks really bad. No, most scenes are Garfield-type backgrounds, which is to say it's just one flat color, maybe with a shading element. Um, like, I think the worst is when um, Scooby and Shaggy are running to, to the buffet table. Uh, that's page 11 hideous back like there's so it's such a low effort background but then you look at other pages like when they're walking on stage or something like that and a lot more effort has been put into it and it just seems like really inconsistent to me it seems all over the place well the i think the issue is when is a background helpful and when is it not helpful and i think with scooby and shaggy running to the banquet table that has more of a background than most of the pictures but the background is so thinly colored in, and the whole focal, like, Sands of Cairo makes such a central appearance that it draws attention away from what we should be looking at. Like, go to the very first page, page one, and look such... at the detail that's that's been put there. We see the full Palestinian background. They didn't have to make the pillars marble, like, distinctly marble. But that's a, that, that is a very, it's both the tiniest picture and the most fully realized setting. And, and that's what I'm saying. It's, it's wildly inconsistent. I mean, most of this is just like characters making an expression or pointing or doing something. Um, just like a shot of one character. We don't even have a full scene. And I think those are almost uniformly probably lifted from other Scooby works. Uh, I do not want to spend much more time on this. Um, well, we're almost at the end. Here we are at page 43. We've just looked at the... Again, this picture of Fred makes it look like he's a, a play piece from a Scooby board game. Wow, that's extremely accurate, actually. It's time to set up a trap, Fred says, so here's the plan. And the plan is that... S Fred's Sorry, go ahead. trap sucks. So Scooby and Shaggy are gonna... No, Shaggy and Fred are gonna hide behind the backdrop. Scooby's gonna sit at the piano and pretend to be another concert pianist, like the great Scooberini. Scooby-Dooberini, excuse me. Um, and then when the ghost appears, Shaggy and Fred are gonna throw the piano cover at him. Let's take a second... Why is the piano cover making an appearance when we've already established the heavy, heavy curtain multiple times in this book? Also, what are Velma and Daphne doing? Why is this? Why has this become a boys' club? This it makes no sense to do that here. 
Um, I guess it's because, you know, here's like video games and cartoons, books are a boy's medium. But they, these boys read books. Girls don't read books. Girls don't want this stuff. So, of course, they're going to focus on the, bo the boys. Books. Battlestar Galactica. <laughs> Um, boys read books. I completely agree that Velma and Daphne do not have nearly as much of a role as they could and should have in this book. And and I want to say, to our discredit, as we've been recapping this book chapter by chapter, we have often neglected to, to provide either of the two women dialogue, but none of it is notable enough to comment on. Well, it's, it's all like Scooby and Shaggy do something and Velma's like, oh look, they're doing that thing. So... It's very, it's separate from the action. They're kind of, they're surgically removed from anything fun and interesting that's happening. To close out the seventh chapter, I do yeah. want to leave this up to you because I know you love it so much. There's a little bit of Scooby bargaining. Oh, I do love the Scooby bargaining. So Daphne is trying to see if Scooby won't help by being the concert pianist. Scooby doesn't want to do it. This puts him in, an, in a scary point. It's not just a gag with a Shaggy anymore. Scooby says, uh -uh. well, Velma asks, Will you do it for a Scooby snack? Scooby doesn't move. He's not going to do that. Now Fred's bargaining. He's saying, Scooby, will you do it for two Scooby snacks? And Scooby says no. Daphne's upping the ante. How about three Scooby snacks? And she's holding on. And it's at this point, Shaggy actually butts in. Like, I'll do I'll do it for three Scooby snacks. I, really quick, Evan. The first aisle was great. I thought you had I know. I feel really bad that. that I, uh, that I <laughs> you like, walked that? it back. No, I think I think you felt your voice crack and you automatically wanted to redo that, but it was perfect. Uh -huh. Thank you. I I actually heard it as well, and then I was like, oh no, what am I doing? I was like, I can't let this moment go. We need to draw some attention to that. Uh, but Shaggy jumps in. He's like, hey, no, no, I'll take that. Like in Settlers of Catan, when somebody's like, three sheep. Come on, I'll give you three sheep for that ore. Hey, I'll do it. I'll do it. Okay, here, me, 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 me. I was like, hey, it's not your turn. You can't also, trade. You have nine points. No one's trading with you. <laughs> um, but. Scooby, of course, if he's going to be underbid by Shaggy, he's going to take up on that offer, and he does. Uh, so their plan, the plan is set. Their plan is in motion. Oh, sorry, real quick. Um, Scooby jumps, gobbles the treats out of Daphne's hand, shouts, okay, Scooby dooby doo, Scooby barks, and then Daphne says, good, good boy, boy, Scooby. Scooby. Um, and it's just, Scooby is not a real, they're treating him too much like a dog. I'm sorry, I'm saying the same thing again and again, but it's true. So the end of chapter seven ends actually with Velma saying, you guys do what you're going to do. Daphne and I are actually going to go down to the secret passage. So at least the ladies are given uh, a little bit of mm. action in their own direction. It also ends with Fred saying, I'll go get Mr. Snorkel much. That way it would look more realistic when Scooby is pretending to be a concert pianist for this show that's supposed to have Hugo Frescanini. Also, there are no audience members. There's no audience members. So if the ghost's plan was to tank the theater... They win. They've succeeded. They've already no done need. it. Why would the ghost come back to sabotage a dog who plays... Granted, I would much sooner go see a dog playing the piano than Hugo Frescanini. Um, can we just jump to the beginning picture of chapter 8 on page 46, where we again see Fred making Mr. Snorkel much uncomfortable. It looks like Fred had been hover-handing mere seconds before and has just decided that he can... Uh, lightly rest his his He's, fingers on his shoulder he can make contact yes and mr snorkel much looks like he just does not want this right now he's like hey i'm at the gym fred don't bother me it's not, it's not neither the time nor the place melon's concerned are you sure your plan will actually work and fred says absolutely 
Uh, by the way, I didn't see Gus in your office. Is he okay? And Melvin says, yeah, Gus had to go home because, again, he had the most brutal concussion that a person could ever possibly survive. This is... He's brain dead. This appears to be a clue that Gus is the villain. It's... We've had a couple of... Uh, and I will... The one thing... Not the one thing. One thing that is in the favor of the book at this point is that we have some good potential villains, wouldn't you say? We don't know who it is. Uh, there, there's a possibility that it could be... Um... Actually, you know what? Let's 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 save that. Trap the ghost, and then we'll run through all of the possibilities. That's, I like doing that better too. I'll just note that Fred, uh, right before the gag starts or the trap starts, says, "Shaggy, Scooby, where are you?" Like they they wanted to get that line out. So Scooby starts playing. The ghost shows up. I, uh, I we keep dragging our feet. Um, you Luke, between the two of us, you are the more musically inclined, correct? I uh, I do love to play the guitar. The theme song was my creation. I helped, but only with the words. You you did a lot of input on the words, and we both sung it. The, the theme song was our creation. I composed it. You composed it, and you did a very, very good job. Thank Luke, you, you are, a, I would say, a very skilled guitar, guitar player. Really How fun. would you comment, just to spend a minute, on the ghost's uh, technique, I guess? I, I mean, he's holding it like Victor Wooten holds his bass. Super high up, and... His fingering position is way more bass-like than guitar-like. For one thing, he's finger-styling. And just the the reach that he's got on his the hand on the neck is super far. Again, it, the way Victor Wooten plays bass, for those of you that know what I'm talking about, I think is a peak reference. Um, but it's not the way a person really plays guitar. I actually got that reference, and that's only because I've known you since we were uh, high schoolers. Yeah, because you probably I've made you watch part of Live at the Quick with me. I enjoyed it. I, I thought I quite liked it. I think that is one of the best concerts on DVD there is. Uh, so basically, Scoob is playing the piano. The ghost appears, playing the guitar. So Fred and Shaggy throw the piano cover not at the ghost, but uh, let me read this. Now Fred called. He and Shaggy ran out from behind the backdrop. They threw the piano cover up in the air, but the ghost ducked out of the way. The cover came down on Melvin Snorkel much. Thinking he was the ghost, Fred and Shaggy accidentally tackled him to the ground. Now, really quick, Fred and Shaggy didn't accidentally tackle. They mistook Melvin for the goat. That's just, it's a frankly badly worded sentence right there. Uh, also, they didn't throw it at the ghost. They threw it up in the air. Up in the air, as if in celebration. Granted, it feels like a celebratory moment. If we go back one page onto the two-page spread picture, we see Scooby playing the piano... The text tells us it's chopsticks, but Scooby's getting really into it. The ghost is obviously enjoying playing along. Like, these two have chemistry. And, and Melvin and is off part, to the side, and he, he has his eyes closed. Like, he's taking in the music. And his hands in his pockets, as if he's like, uh, this is uh, season one of Vinyl, and we're watching, uh, what's his name? Oh, shoot, why can't I remember this character's name? I really like this actor. He was in Jumanji. Um... Robin Williams. Yep, that's the one. <laughs> He's like, Robin Williams. <laughs> the villain in the new Jumanji movie and the main character in vinyl. Bobby Cannavale. You know Bobby Cannavale? He's such a delight. Cannavale. Cannavale. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> he plays such delightful villains and good guys. I, I just really enjoy it. Bobby Cannavale has been my uh, awakening actor of the last year. Man, that all needs to go. <laughs> I'm sorry to have taken so long. Um, so that is all a shambles, uh, that part of the plan. The ghost grabs the jacket that Scooby is wearing, and Scooby slips out of it. 
and the ghost yes. sort of, I guess, loses purchase on the floor in spite of not having feet, tumbles back into the piano, the piano slams down, and then the curtain falls on the piano. Scooby's tail got tangled in the curtain rope. He shot straight up as the curtain came crashing down on the trapped ghost. Um, here, too, the phrasing is really awkward. The curtain came crashing down on the trapped ghost. The curtain trapped the ghost by coming crashing down. Well, technically the ghost was already trapped because it was inside of the piano. All the curtain is doing is keeping the piano, I guess, from opening. And oh, mind you, right. grand piano lids, very heavy. Yeah, it shouldn't need the, uh, the curtain on top of it. But this is the curtain coming into play. My biggest issue with this whole gag scene is that the piano cover was a central part. Like, kids get a piano on stage. Kids get a heavy curtain. A piano cover is something I don't even relate to. Um, it, I just want to note, uh, you mentioned Shaggy, uh, Scooby's jacket gets taken off. When Scooby becomes the, the uh, Scooby Dooberini, the concert pianist, he gets three concerty elements. He gets the suit jacket, the tuxedo jacket, he gets the bow tie, and his hair is slicked back on his head. Okay, that's what the text said. And the picture just has like two water drops coming off the back of his head. That's all we get for it. His slicked back hair is nothing. They should not have mentioned that. They should have given him a cummerbund. They should have given him like one of those vesty, like white underneath the jacket things. There's so many things way yeah, better. The, the text actually says, and the fur on the top of his head was brushed back. And it just looks like normal Scooby-Doo. But they just, again, put like a couple of drops behind his head as if as if got... As if to show that like he had slicked it back he's, with he's water. He slicked it. Uh, does not work for me. Um, also, especially because him wearing the shiny jacket with nothing underneath the jacket, like a white shirt, makes it look like he's a greaser. Oh, dang. Wow. Wow. You're right. But we're on, we're well on our way to a happy ending because we've caught the ghost. He's trapped... He or she is trapped in the piano with the curtain on top. We can... We are in, we are in chapter 9, by the way. This is the final also, chapter. Chapter 9 opens up with Fred helping uh, Melvin Snorkelmutch out from under the piano cover. Fred, with a real white knight nice guy look on his face as Melvin is just kind of tolerating it, I guess. Uh, it turns out that uh, that Velma and Daphne, their little trip to, the, to under the stage was not in vain. They actually found Hugo Frescanini stashed down there. And let's, let's mention that the women got a, an important role that happened entirely off-screen. Yeah, it's... <sighs> James Gelsey could have done a better job with the women in this book, and that's all I'm going to say. I want to I introduce the possibility that he was forced and edited into this, but I, I gotta say, <laughs> I, I don't really see... I mean, maybe the majority of the story took place under the stage with just Daphne and Velma, and this was a real girl power story before the, uh, before the cuts. got to the chopping block. Yeah. yeah. Uh, let's, let's now take the time to discuss all of the possible culprits uh, beneath the, the hood. Uh, let's take that moment and just, a, just two things real quick. Um, Shaggy, uh, Scooby is caught up on the rope up, way up high, and he says, Ralph, Raggy, rup rear. Rup rear. But up in here are both words that, Shaggy, that Scooby doesn't need to start with R's. I want to keep singing song lyrics based on, what did I do earlier? I said walk this way. Uh, you said rup rear, and all I could think of is, uh, Raga, rake me, ruse my right, rock in rear, rock in rear. <laughs>
<laughs> I love that. I, I, I just also, I'm sorry to be taking so much time. I love seeing Scooby coming down on the rope, still wearing his bow tie like a Western-themed Chippendales dancer. It's <laughs> not where I thought you were going with that. Yep, that, that's what I got. Um, and now let's talk a little bit about the villain who is trapped inside of the grand piano. Who are our options? Uh, Sloop. It could be Sloop because Sloop is good at playing guitar. And Sloop is good at playing guitar, and he didn't want, uh, he considered himself the greatest musician ever to have played at the Palace Theater. And also, maybe he was lying about liking concert pianists, and maybe what is more important to him is that the theater closes down so that he can buy it. Maybe. Maybe also he wanted to be the one to play on stage last. So I think that's a strong possibility. Sloop, I, I think, think is... he's certainly not the last person to play on stage, though. As the ghost, I mean. Like, he wants to preserve his legacy. He wants to be the greatest person who's ever played here. Oh. And he considers Hugo Frescanini the greatest, one of the greatest musicians. So um, Sloop is a strong contender. Uh, let's also mention the two kids we saw at the beginning. Uh, Todd and Lisa. I was sure it was going to be Todd, or at least Lisa. But why? Because of Lisa's dress. But they want to save the planet the planet theater yeah i mean that's our first clue is the fact that they don't have the right signs they don't match with the other protesters uh for some reason it was just the fact that lisa really liked sloop's music uh they liked his original music i think and that's what the the ghost on stage seems to be playing um lisa's dress looks a little bit like the ghost's um kind of the hemline the hemline, the of the hemline dress looks like the... is so conspicuous i thought they must be looking to do something with that my whole thing with it with the kids is that i don't think it could be them because them sabotaging the concert is what sloop would want he wants the theater to go under and they're spe they specifically want the opposite of that so you're right and it's not them how about gus because Gus has definitely been painted as a, as a suspect. Gus is super suspect. For one thing, what should have been a fatal thing, again, like, he pointed to a, like, a grass stain on his knee and said, somebody shot me. Um, it's very suspect that he survived that beam falling. But why, why would Gus, why would Gus want to close down the theater? He's been the stage manager for 35 years, and Melvin does not give a flying F about everything that's falling from the ceiling on Gus. I think that Gus is bad at his job, though, possibly. Possibly. I don't think we see evidence that Gus is bad at his job. I think we see ample evidence that Melvin is a delinquent and neglectant uh, theater owner. I think So he's, ethical, he's a disgruntled employee. A, a justifiably disgruntled employee. Again, like, Melvin, best-case scenario, should come under legal charges for the negligence he's done so far. Any ethical theater manager would choose to shut themselves down rather than put their own patrons and employees at risk. And I will say that the one person we have not discussed is the one who's... Melvin. Well, Melvin has always been... I believe Melvin's always been on stage. You're right. Melvin's been present the entire time. Melvin and Gus being in cahoots, I think, is a possibility. But there is one other person we haven't discussed who is, who should be uh, a strong contender. And that is Wanda Weathers. And sure enough, um, Melvin actually grabs the, uh, the ghost by the top of its head pulls off the costume, all in one fell swoop. It is Wanda Weathers underneath, and it turns out that Wanda needed a big break for her architecture business. She wanted to scare people away, to force the sale of the theater to Sloop, and then she had uh, plans for the multiplex already drawn up. That she was planning on selling to Sloop. I gotta say, the person who ultimately did it had some of the worst reasons to do it. 
Um, she put in a heck of a lot of legwork, put herself in legal peril by committing these crimes, and she hasn't even made a sale yet. To a guy who almost certainly has go-to architects already. He's been in this game for some time. Mm. Um, but that's Wanda's justification. And, of course, she was able to get around the theater because she's an architect. She got these blueprints from a friend. Frick, she's wearing the blueprints. So that's how she knows her way around. What I think is really funny is that uh, once, they unmask, um, once they unmask Wanda, Sloop Bannon walks into the theater and accompanying him... Banyan, excuse me. Banyan. This is not Bannon. We... <laughs> I don't. I didn't need to. Specify oh no, it's fine. I, that's my mistake. Um, Sloop, I kept, all throughout this, I kept thinking Sloop Bannon. I'm like, no, 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 not that no, guy. I also like, uh, what's his name? Stuart. Steve Stuart, Bannon. Stuart Bannon sounds a lot like Steve Bannon. It's kind of similar. Um, I don't think Steve Bannon was a person that was of relevance to. This was the year 2000. So, yeah, in the yeah, 2000. Quite a while ago. Yeah. Um, but, but so uh, Sloop Bannon walks into the theater, I guess down the aisle, accompanying him are uh, Todd, Lisa, and the the evil Terminator from Terminator 2. What? What? What did I miss here? Wow. Could not look more like the Terminator as the cop in Terminator 2. Silver bullet holes couldn't make him look more like the Terminator from Terminator 2. I mean, it makes sense that Sloop is bringing a cop in here to arrest the uh, the criminal, but why did he bring these kids in? Yeah, why are the kids coming in, too? I, I think it's just because we need to see them again. They appear so briefly at the beginning for obviously being fully designed characters. Uh, the kids are basically just there to provide some exposition and to explain that actually outside there are a lot of people, just like a horde of people who are uh, who really really want to get to get into the theater so that they can hear this ghost play. Word is spreading about the groovy ghost, Lisa said. I'll bet even more people will come. And Shaggy's about to say, actually, no, it wasn't a ghost. It was just Wanda Weathers over here. But uh, Melvin claps his hand over Shaggy's mouth and says, it's too bad the ghost isn't going to be able to perform for everyone at once, but we'll work it out. Maybe do two shows a night. This is wonderful. You know what? I actually really like that. I really like the idea that they are using the ghost to their advantage, and that's how the theater is saved. I think that's pretty neat. The The biggest failing of this book for me, which is not resolved at the end by this, is that the theater is still falling apart. It still can't quite support itself. Um, they're now going to try and do a, a gimmick that's based on a lie to try and get people in for one night. And I don't think the theater is actually going to be fixed. I think it's still a safety hazard that should be torn down. And Wanda Weathers, while the villain, was not incorrect. And like Sloop, Sloop is kind of like, he actually says, good news for you, bad news for me. This place could have made a nice multiplex. Good luck, Melvin. And he walks out. And what a, what a, like, he, he's like a, on like a D&D &D alignment sheet, like a true neutral person. True neutral, yeah. Not even chaotic neutral. Just neutral like stuff doesn't affect him he's just like well this is what i would like to do oh i couldn't do it oh well by the end of this book sloop banyan is my favorite character he's the best yeah i i like that a lot i kind of want sloop banyan to appear in every episode he's almost kumail nanjiani oh. our lawyer character in this episode like he's so which is the best character we collectively have dreamed up and i'm gonna say we because i want to get in on what you created yeah no no i i agree um I, I'm just going to wrap this up, and then there's one last thing I want to hit before we close on this episode. Mm. So it wraps up with, a, I guess, a little gag, as, as all Scooby-Doo episodes uh, have to do, involving Scooby-Doo. 
in which Scooby takes the ghost sunglasses and guitar and starts playing. These teens start dancing next to him, and then Scooby says, he barks, um, Scooby Groovy Doo. And you know what I hate about the fact that Scooby says that? I don't. I mean, I could guess, but what? It is wildly inconsistent with how he says all the rest of his dialogue in this entire book. I, I don't hate that line. I think it sounds kind of good. But it is very inconsistent with anything else he said. How would you... What would be consistent? If it was consistent, he would have said, Ruby, Ruby, Ru. You know, you're right. The way they present Scooby in this book, he would be incapable of saying his own name. Because, I mean, an S and a C, that's two R's in Gelsey's book. Mm-hmm. Everyone laughed and as the music played on. Is the final line as Scooby plays and the kids dance. And So, what... Mm-hmm. So one thing that I did want to hit on is um, we we mentioned the Scooby-Doop, but we did not explain it, and we did not come up with our own. Okay, yeah. So the Scooby-Doop, ordinarily, is a scenario in which Scooby and Shaggy typically are the ones being chased by the monster, and they need to flip the tables, get the power back in their court, so that they can put the monster on the back heel. And they generally do this by improving a little scene. And the scene is so great. Uh, what, what do we say? The social pressures are so great that the monster buys in and assumes that whoever they're pretending to be, that is who they are, uh, etc. And it's often because Scooby and Shaggy improv a scene based on their current setting. So it just seems believe it's hard to, hard to deny the reality in front of you. Here, it might be Scooby and Shaggy. Scooby is an announcer, an opera singer, along with the, the Scooby Dubarini, the great pianist. And they then orient themselves as those characters relative to the monster and force the monster into a new character. Oh, is that your Scooby-Doop? Um, I think that would be the readiest one at hand. It's pre-built. Um, in my Scooby-Doop, the the ghost is a rock star. So hmm. Scooby and Shaggy are roadies. It was either roadies or groupies. I'm going to go with roadies. And so they're, he's up on stage, and Scooby and Shaggy are like, oh, like, like um, soundtrack, soundtrack. And so the, the ghost is, like, playing the guitar. And they're just like, oh, could you, like, uh, levels up, levels down. I'm, yeah, and I... I'm going to say kind of like a stage manager, a little bit more than a roadie, right? Or I'd say oh, sorry. Maybe a roadie and a stage manager. So one, one of them is the sound guy. One mm. of them is the sound guy, and the other one is a roadie. And while the ghost is distracted with making sure his levels are okay, uh, I think Scooby is the one who's the roadie, and he's putting stuff around the ghost. So he's, like, putting amps around the ghost and sort of creating oh. this little barricade. So when they're done, the ghost plays, and he's, like, trapped. And it out. plays in on him. He blasts himself exactly. with music. Mm-hmm. That's the perfect one. I think that is, it could not be better. That's the Scooby-Doop that I would have loved to see in this. Um, and it's not. it doesn't even have to be the trap that the episode ends with. Typically, it just gives Scooby and Shaggy a chance to get away. And then we're back into the episode. Um, so that's it. Uh, let's do final thoughts. Um, final thoughts? I know that... You have a lot of ungenerous things to say about this book, as do I, but I still really enjoyed it reading it through. Am I going to go through the whole other series of stuff that's also probably written by James Kelsey? Um, probably not. Depends on what Hannah sends us next. But I did really enjoy it. It felt very nostalgic for me. This is a good... This isn't middle grade. This is, like, young readers, I guess. I mean, like, it's a children's book. Um, I think that if I was a kid reading this... I would have gotten a very big kick out of it. Same. And it, it really, it was easy for me to read this as a kid, like to go to that place in my mind and to read it from that perspective. And I think that's to the book's credit. 
Uh, so yeah, I, this was Scooby-Doo and the Groovy Ghost. Let me just end with a note about the author. Um, as a boy, James Gelsey used to run home from school to watch the Scooby-Doo cartoons on television, only after finishing his homework. Today, he still enjoys watching them with his wife and daughter. He also has a real dog named Scooby who loves nothing more than a good Scooby snack. If you had a dog, Evan, would you name it Scooby? No. Never. Uh, for me, maybe never. Maybe Maximilian. I think that's a good name for a dog. Hmm. I, Scoobert. Um, I, I just gotta say, I'm disappointed that James Gelsey gets a note on this, and uh, Del Sur does not. Can we... I guess we were afraid to mention earlier, um, there's actually a little uh, order slip at the back that you could cut out. It turns out that this is the eighth book. The first is... It's always Scooby-Doo and the... So I'm not going to read that part. But the first one is Haunted Castle. After that, it's Mummy's Curse. Then the Snow, then Snow Monster, Sunken Ship, Howling Wolfman, Vampire's Revenge, and Carnival Creeper. And can I just say, all of those sound way scarier and more terrifying than this one. Groovy Ghost sounds fun. Groovy Ghost has not a thread of a threat in it. Howling Wolfman sounds very scary. I, I will say, I think maybe some of our issues with this book are completely addressed in earlier ones in the series. I think we jumped in late to a very serial uh, collection of books here. This book is so old that the very back page has an ad for a video cassette. Scooby-Doo and the Witch's Ghost, which came out a long time ago. I know because I remember when that came out. It's a 1999 Warner Home Video. Bring home the mystery only on video. Interesting cover, actually, because it's um, Shaggy being pulled by Scooby's tail, and Velma is by the Mystery Machine, and that's it. Scooby, Shaggy, and Velma are not a full trio on their own, you wouldn't think. It would be Scooby, Shaggy, and Daphne, but I like this. To me, it makes more sense. Tim Curry is in this. I don't recognize any of the other names, though. Billy Ray Cyrus? What? Theme song performed by Billy Ray Cyrus. Anyway, uh, this episode's done. Um, let's, let's just run through really quick the list of, uh, uh, introduction setting, rising action, climax, <laughs> and denouement. Where do we see each of these in this book? Are you, are you serious? No. No, <laughs> let's get to the outro. Thank you for joining us for the episode. Stick around for the outro. Well, kids, thanks for joining us for that very special episode of Scooby Dudes. I hope you enjoyed that book. Oh, I do not like your teacher voice. Now let's go ahead and tell them where they can follow up with us to find Ooh. news. I don't... I think the worst part is it. it's, uh, you're on the edge of, like, laughter. I'm just having so much fun today. Ugh. Now... Ugh. Ugh. <laughs> I hate it, too. It's so saffrony sweet. It's For me, it's not on the edge of laughter. It's on the edge of vomit. <laughs> I can just imagine you after, like, a, a hard night's drinking, like, hey, I... Uh, Oh, I'm so drunk. I gotta. Oh, I just gotta have a good time tonight. <laughs> I'm sorry. I'm so sloppy drunk. Can someone call me a cab? Oh, I hate this. Okay, <laughs> go to twitter.com/thescoobydudes. Follow us on Twitter. Also, follow us on Facebook. Facebook.com/scoobydudes. It's as obvious as it could be. Facebook Scooby Dudes. Yeah, we um, we need one more uh. We need one more Facebook follow to get to 100. So oh, nice. Hey, please like be, us. be the centurion of us. Uh, come on, uh, get on Facebook for us. Also, in addition to Twitter and Facebook, feel free to visit our website, scoobydudes.com. We actually got the domain scoobydudes.com. That's the best portal if you need to start out at one place for all of our contacts. 
what I'm gonna, going to be doing is either scanning or taking photos of uh, of the pictures in this book, and we're going to caption them, and so that'll let you uh, see exactly what um what we did. Show notes, corrections, captions, screenshots, and beautiful original title card art. These are all things you can look forward to at ScoobyDudes.com. Um, and that title card art, let's just note that that's generally commissioned and paid by talented, uh, paid to talented, they don't pay to appear on our podcast, but we commission title card art just for these episodes of Scooby Dudes, and that money has to come from somewhere. It comes from Patreon. Just a quick aside, this episode's title card was um, illustrated by someone named Tam, and if you want to check her out on Tumblr, go to tntdynamo. Uh, .tumblr.com, or you can find her on Twitter also uh, at TNT Dynamo. So if you like what you see uh, on our website of her artwork, please check her out, follow her on all of these different uh, different social media yeah, platforms. Support her, give her business, commission art. Just make sure it's Scooby Doo art. Tam will only do Scooby Doo art. Tam has been oh, very clear Luke, about Luke, that. Luke, 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 no. <laughs> Tam, Tam could do anything. Request Scooby Doo art, request just regular cartoon art. And again, you can view Tam's art on our website, scoobydudes.com. That's one of the best places to start out at. And you can support us supporting Tam, patreon.com slash scoobydudes. That's how our beloved fans can become our beloved patrons and keep the lights on for us. There should be some audio this week. And I say that on the air so that Luke has to edit it. That's right. Yeah, I do have audio. I, and I've got stuff to drop, too. Um, so if you saw Black Panther and you want to hear us talk about it, Patreon's the place for that. Pretty much any ancillary stuff to Scooby-Doo that doesn't make the cut goes on Patreon. So go to patreon.com, donate to us. You'll get a shout-out the first time you donate. You'll get a shout-out every subsequent time that you donate. We actually do have a new donor, and I am I am immensely grateful um, to this person. His name is Mitchell. Mitch. Mitchell. Uh, Mitchell has been emailing us, and then just based on our correspondence, he uh, he decided to go ahead and donate to us. Which is great. Uh, he could have donated any amount of money because his correspondence is uh, the true value that you cannot put a price tag on. Yeah, but uh, is also worthless next to money. So I'm glad that he upgraded. Um, Mitchell joins a group of esteemed uh, donors, patrons... Um, whose names we shout out every single week. Every single week. Yeah, we, we don't just give Mitchell this one shout out. Hey, Mitchell, thanks so much for emailing us. Thanks even more for donating to us on Patreon. By the way, keep emailing us. You don't get to stop doing that just because you're donating to us now. We'll shout them out every subsequent week, just like we're going to shout out these beloved donors. Thank you so much for your hard-earned cash and giving it to me personally. You know, it's really funny that that's your I'm going to throw up voice because it makes me want to throw up. Yeah. I don't like myself when I do that. It's disgusting. I hate it. Uh, so this is the one last thing, which is if you go to iTunes and you leave us a review, I, Evan, will read that review on the podcast, provided that it is five stars or more. And as we've, uh, as we've demonstrated in the past, Evan will read verbatim whatever it is that you write. And we really won't censor any of it unless we have to. So if it is in Canada and the States, I check that every week. And if it is outside of Canada and the States, I do get updates from a service that I've signed up for. And those come in every month. So if you are in like, I don't know, like Vatican City or something. I don't know if they have an iTunes store now that I think about it. Um, but if you're in like the UK and you leave us a review, 
uh, I will not check that every week, uh, but I will read it eventually. So I apologize for that. We do have a new review this week, actually. It's a huge surprise to me. All right. Where, where is this um, review from? So this review was left just two days ago. We're recording this March 24th, so this review was left March 22nd. Uh, it is five stars, obviously. Um, it is titled, I love this show so much. Uh, and the person who left this review is Scooby Saves hyphen alternate. Uh, <laughs> Do we, we already have a Scooby Saves and, review, by the way? Uh, the, the review is, <laughs> says, uh, new account, new review. I stand behind the red mystery machine. Oh, you son of a gun. Oh, you son of a gun. Oh, my goodness. You... This is Mitchell, right? This is the same old Mitch. It sure is. Sure sounds like Mitchell again. You're wrong, Mitch. Like, I love and respect you, and I certainly love and respect your money, but you're wrong. Just let me know if I need to say you're right in order to keep getting your money, because I'd like to know that before you take it away. I don't know how I feel about the fact that someone left a review oh, that's... and explicitly stated in the review, this is the second review that I am leaving you. My only concern is that iTunes might police these, and I don't think they do. So, look, to future listeners who might be tempted to make a second account and write us a review, do it. Do it now. Do it now. You should have already done this. Frankly, Mitchell is leaving the rest of you so-called fans behind in the dust. I 100% thought you were going to do a John Oliver bit just then. Do it. Oh, do it, <laughs> do now. it now. Do it now. Why aren't you doing it? You need to do it now! <laughs> Uh, man, that's it. This is our episode. We recorded for a very long time. We really did, but it's a book, and hey, we're both English majors. We need to give it its due. Catch us next week. We've been the Scooby Dudes, and I've enjoyed this very much. And I love you, Evan. (laughs) 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 Is that that actually going to be the end of this episode?